Very good to have you on board. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the School Leadership Podcast brought to you by NAHT and NAHT Edge. New ideas, thought-leading opinions and the latest ways of working. This is the School Leadership Podcast. Let's begin by asking a question. How effective is the professional development in your school? Are you confident that the CPD your teachers are engaging in is having a real positive impact on outcomes for pupils? In this episode, we talk about the professional learning of teachers and consider what school leaders can do to ensure that CPD in their school is of the very highest quality. Our guest for this episode is David Weston. Now, David is the founder and chief executive of the Teacher Development Trust, and one of the authors of Unleashing Great Teaching, which is a new book that shines a light on the secrets of effective teacher development. The age director, James Bowen, managed to get some time with David at the offices of the TDT and began by asking why he felt the time was right for this brand new book on teacher CPD. Engaging content and revealing insights. In conversation with James Bowen. It was quite a long journey, actually, James. Um, I think my colleague Bridget and I have been reflecting for quite a long time how there really wasn't any one single place for school leaders to go to to reflect on how to develop staff and teachers in particular. Uh, There were a number of great pieces of research. There were some interesting case studies. Um, but there wasn't one place to read about it and we saw it as an interesting challenge um, we were wonderfully naive initially of saying well it's you know essentially like writing about you know 20 to 40 articles each and sort of sticking them together but of course once you get into that depth of each chapter and the concepts that flow through the whole book then actually the dialogue that we had between each other um, Bridget Clay and I as authors really strengthened the thinking and we had to go back and challenge some of our thinking to really make sure that it was consistent with all of the other ideas throughout the book. So um, it was both a developmental process through for us, it was responding to the fact that we wanted one place for people to start on this journey, but also I think reflecting this trend recently where we see more and more leaders thinking about the staff as their greatest asset, um, you know, much less about systems and structures and, and buildings, and saying if we, if we can focus our attention on making sure our staff get better and better each week, each month, each year, that's how we'll do school improvement. So I think all of those factors came together and it felt like a good idea at the time. So let me jump straight to specifics now. Um, And I want to think about often lots, you know, I'm sure lots of schools are getting professional learning right and there's lots of great things going on. I'm sure you you see that and could talk about that. But I'm interested, first of all, in where things aren't going right. Um, And you would have seen examples, I'm sure, in schools where despite people's best efforts, you think the professional learning isn't great here. are there common reasons for that? So I suppose what I'm asking is, are there some pitfalls that schools should be avoiding when planning their professional learning for teachers? Yes, okay. So the first weakness we see is the link between the professional development plan in whatever state that is and the school development plan. And in many schools, um, we see that they've got all these priorities of things they want to improve, but it's very hard to understand how the planned programme of activities and not only the formal inputs of the courses and the insets and the twilights, but also the meeting times, the informal work, the co-planning, the moderation, all of that kind of the one-to-one conversations. How do they all thread together 
so that teachers are constantly learning and improving how to change their practice to achieve those school development goals. So that's the first thing, I think. We just see that really weak link. But where it works well, you see a whole school leadership team engaged in conversation about how are we developing our people and our knowledge and our expertise to meet those goals. And they put evaluation at the heart of that professional learning. Not that the senior leaders need to make sure that the improvement is happening, but the whole team have collective responsibility for checking have we made a difference yet and are we meeting our collective aims. So that's the first thing, that link between school development and professional development. The next thing is with the professional development, when is it happening? And we still see too many schools who I think only focus on what I would call delivering the ingredients. So if you want someone to, be re- uh, to have great nutrition and to be really well fed, you can't just deliver them boxes of ingredients because if they haven't got a plan of how to cook with them, if they don't have the skills of how to cook with them, if they're not in the habit of regularly cooking and planning and eating together, those ingredients won't, won't be useful. And too often we see schools planning professional development as a series of inputs. We will tell teachers X, Y, and Z. You wouldn't see that for, te- for pupils anymore, but we see it for teachers. Where it works much better, people are saying, here's the opportunity for input, here's the opportunity for trying things out, here's the opportunity for discussion and reflection, here's the opportunity for evaluating the impact we're having, and here's the opportunity to come back again and again and again, deepening our understanding of of each of these areas um, and really giving staff ownership of their own learning. So it's moving from one-off inputs and delivering ingredients to a whole sustained process of learning over time. Um, so that's, that's another key ingredient. And then another issue is um, sometimes where are you getting your expertise from? Some schools will say, oh, we've got great practice in the school now. We'll just get our best people to help our worst people, um, uh, assuming that they can somehow just make that happen. Um, but the research is very clear that the schools that are going to flourish and really improve will be the ones that connect with really high-quality pedagogy, leadership, and expertise from outside of the organisation. And we find that um, a major pitfall is when people haven't planned to say, how do we not only use the expertise we have internally, but constantly connect to the very best thinking, practice, ideas, research outside the school? Um, So a great example I've seen is where um, a school invested in memberships of subject associations and specialist associations and the chartered college, and they made sure they built up habits of people being aware of what's going on and connecting with that practice and going and seeing practice and bringing ideas back. So um, there's that con- there's a strategic element, there's a timing and resourcing element, there's a kind of an ideas element, um, and I think the final element that we see can be problematic is how does appraisal and accountability either support or hinder professional learning? Where it works well, then people feel that an appraisal process is quite diagnostic and it will really uh, be working with someone to help them identify what they need to do to achieve their goals, um, setting goals that they find challenging but engaging, working with someone to help them develop and the whole thing is to help the teachers to help their pupils. Um, And in that case you then find all the accountability systems people are learning from the data that they're generating and the observations and the feedback and they're learning how to improve themselves. That's when it works well. When it doesn't work well, we see systems where genuinely we have teachers saying to us, um, I do the CPD, but frankly, I have to be focused on 
my next lesson observation or making sure my books look good or getting my next set of data in because ultimately that trumps any CPD that I'm doing. And you see this misalignment between the two where there's a lack of trust to get on with learning, where there's a lack of um, space and good quality feedback. And you just see these things fighting against each other so that everyone is frustrated, including the leaders. And in your answer, you talked about evaluation and impact and the importance of those two things. And you talk about that a lot in the book. It's a very strong theme. It's one of those things I think we instinctively know that we need to do it, but it's quite hard in practical terms actually to think about what that looks like. What, in your experience, what does that look like when schools are really good at evaluating the impact of CPD that's going on? When they're really good at evaluating impact of CPD, there are a number of things. Number one, every CPD activity begins with people identifying the impact they want to have. So if you're improving questioning, the ultimate aim cannot be to look like you're better at questioning. The ultimate aim has to be, show me some specific examples of how better questioning is leading to better learning, right? Um, But that, of course, requires all of the people doing the learning about questioning to identify where things are problematic and how they could be better, and then engage in a learning process where they're quite excited about closing the gap between the now and what could be, and using their expertise to apply to their practice. That is a completely different world to some I have deemed questioning is not good, I will put on information about how to do better questioning, and then I will monitor to see whether I can see questioning. Um, And that's very superficial, and what people will do is then just do the jazz hands when someone walks in, or they'll tell children, oh, write down that I asked you this question, or something nonsensical. Um, So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that Um, In schools where professional learning works well, accountability systems um, and data systems are really carefully aligned to learning goals. So data systems are not about, you know, six weekly or eight weekly data drops so that senior leaders can monitor and take action and do, you know, interventions. They are about helping teachers generate formative information so that they can plan lessons better and they can improve their own practice. And... Um, where you see this works well, you're constantly saying to, leaders are constantly saying to teachers, how will you know if this has worked? How, will you, how do you currently know whose learning is less effective? What information are you gathering to guide your own practice and your own professional learning? And ultimately, if teachers are gathering data on pupils, the primary users of that data have to be the teachers and pupils. And then managers can zoom out and see a kind of a helicopter view and say, oh, I can now see some patterns that others can't and provide further information on that. That's really important. So um, how, how do we make sure this monitoring and evaluation happens? It's by thinking the primary purpose of evaluation is to help pupils and teachers practice better and allow the people who support them to support them better. So is this almost about looking at data quite differently, really? So we're, we're looking at the data now and saying... This is fascinating and interesting because I'm trying to work out what's worked, what hasn't worked, what I need to tweak and change. It becomes something that the teacher owns far more directly as opposed to about proving a certain level has been reached or proving that learning has taken. Yes. It, it should be much more about teachers interrogating it and, and being, becoming fascinated by that data. Is that Absolutely. And this completely links to two really important changes which we have seen and are seeing. Number one, assessment without levels. The schools that were successful identified that trying to measure on a kind of a fixed trajectory where children are is not possible. 
and they wanted to deepen teachers' understanding of how they could ask great questions, do great assessments of how children are performing against very specific learning intentions. And then they can gather that information across the piece to change their practice, to identify who needs extra support. That intention is exactly the right one behind professional learning evaluation as well. That's the first thing. The second thing is we now see this big push, and obviously with Ofsted's new framework coming down the line, we see curriculum being a huge new focus for schools. Maybe new in as much as it was a big focus many years ago, but it's coming back. But again, that's being very, very intentional about what children should learn, how you'll know if they've learnt it, and how you can come back to ideas and cycle and iterate over time so that children have learnt well. Again, that is a key thing in professional learning. It's not possible to learn to improve your practice unless you can articulate how effective is the learning right now, what would it look like if it was a lot better, and how would you know if that change had been made. All of that relates to quality assessment without levels and artificial pathways, uh, trajectories, and flight paths and so on. Um, but also, how does that clearly relate to very, very well understood learning intentions through the curriculum sequence? Um, and actually, I think in many cases, there is a, a, perhaps more scope for primaries to kind of jump ahead with this than secondaries, who are still, to some extent, hampered by, well, we have to just achieve that, you know, that external grade for examinations. Um, so I think there are opportunities for everybody and secondaries have the opportunity of being more subject specific, but I'm quite excited by seeing what primary schools can do. Um, I don't think we've gone far enough with assessment without levels, but assessment without levels, curriculum and professional learning together, I think as uh, Dame Alison Peacock once called it, it's the holy trinity. NAHT Edge is a new type of teaching union aimed specifically at teachers with leadership responsibilities. As a member of NAHT Edge, you'll benefit from access to a wealth of leadership resources, practical advice and support with your own career development. You can also watch our new series of bite-sized CPD videos on the NAHT Edge website. Membership is just £13.50 a month or £8.10 if you're part-time. Head over to our website to find out more. Every single episode as it comes out, just click on subscribe. Let's crack on now with part two of James' conversation with David Weston. One of the things you talk about in the book is this idea of professional learning programmes. And I guess that's as opposed to just one-off CPD events. Could you just talk a little more about what you mean by that idea? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to use an analogy of um, a teacher and, in, and her class. Um, if the teacher is presenting something on, let's say, simultaneous equations, then what you wouldn't do is ask her to deliver a PowerPoint presentation on simultaneous equations and then say, great, that's it. You need to go and use that now. What you'd do is you'd begin to identify what knowledge did these children need and what skills do they need and what capacity and confidence do they need before on all of the... Um, the elements of knowledge that they'll need to build towards doing simultaneous equations and then you'll gradually introduce things over time with some examples and then chance to try things in a very guided way and then you'll free the children up over time to do more and more examples and then link it to other bits of learning and eventually it'll be more and more about them exploring their learning 
having been quite guided initially. And that will happen over time. You'll do a topic, you'll leave it, you'll come back later, you'll come back later, you'll build on it. Um, and that was great learning. And we'd accept, expect exactly the same for teachers. So if we are improving the quality of reading and the teaching of reading in our school, it's simply not enough to do a one-off session. A one-off session is probably sufficient to make people aware that there are ideas out there which they weren't previously, of which they weren't previously aware. But it's certainly not enough to change deep, habitual knowledge and, and practice. So if, if I have been teaching reading for 10 years and I just have loads of instincts and habits about what I will do and I interpret things in certain ways, you could give me a wonderful lecture, but there's no way in the heat of the moment with 30 children careering around the class or having to pay attention to all of the complexities of what's going on in the class and maybe I'm quite tired and I've taught five lessons already, then how will I then be able to pause and take on board all this new knowledge and try it out and get the relevant feedback? It's not possible. So a program identifies the moments of input, it identifies the moments of dialogue where teachers talk about it and reflect and it looks at moments where teachers try things out collect evidence or people come and observe and then they get feedback from experts and they see models. All of these different processes of learning need to happen across a period of time and typically speaking if you want to change pedagogy, any major aspect of it, you're looking at it at least six months if not more. So that's why we ask school leaders to say can you plan across the year and say right the big things we need to change are these, when will the inputs be, when will the dialogue be, when will the experimentation be, and when will the monitoring, evaluation, feedback, and, and exemplification be. And look at all of those elements and thread them through the year into programs which have the evaluation built into them. So are we talking here about the, the, the death of one-day training sessions, you know, the traditional model where a teacher goes off, training session, comes back, implement, in theory, or, you know, the one-day inset day where start of the year, school invites a speaker in to do a one-day inset day, and off we go. Are you saying that doesn't work? It does and it doesn't. Um, when it won't work is if you invite someone in, they do a wonderful session, and you never come back to it, and no one ever looks at it again in the meetings, and no one ever reflects on it. However, a one-off event to give some inspiration and some stimulus, which is then followed up in your programme with time to work in phase teams or subject teams, and then time to try things out in classrooms, come back, get together, reflect again, collect some examples of what worked and what didn't, maybe get back in touch with the speaker and ask them for some feedback, go out to other people for their advice, and then gradually over a period of several months, you're implementing these ideas, building on inspiration, that's great. During the programme where you've worked really hard on improving, let's say, behaviour, why not send some people off to a one-day event or conference on behaviour? They can pick up lots of new ideas and stimulus and they're taking their existing challenges and problems with them to that event. So as part of a wider programme, a one-off can be brilliant. In the same way that in a learning experience for children, we will have a day out at the zoo or we'll take them somewhere else and we know that will be great if we've prepared and we follow up. If you knew neither of those things, it's a nice day which everybody ends up forgetting and has no impact. So is this also about, you know, that, that phrase we hear a lot in education, fewer things in greater depth? I wonder often, are we in the trap of you go to schools and 
there's almost initiative overload going on in, in one year of people trying to do an awful lot of things. And often that's because a school feels it needs to improve rapidly. But when you're talking about their six months really to, to bring about lasting deep change, actually that probably means we can't be doing too many different things at the same time. Is that fair? Absolutely. And um, I constantly see a link between um, the, the state where a school is in its improvement cycle and the rate at which it's improving, the link between that and how many things they're trying to do in their school development plan. And I, I went to a, a small one form entry primary school uh, with three key senior leaders there and they had something like a 60 page school development plan in three columns, font size eight, everyone was doing everything all of the time. I mean, you can pretty much guarantee none of it will be done properly. It will all be quite superficially ticked. Whereas the schools who can say, here are the three big priorities. Here's how it links to the whole professional learning plan. Here's how it links to meeting agendas. Here's how it links to all of our performance management and data and accountability. Here's how it links to everybody who comes in. And we're, it's linked to the questions that governors ask. And it's linked to the question that the school improvement partner asks. And we can really show how everything is connected in a coherent, consistent manner. Those are the schools where you see real progress being made. I have to say, schools are constantly under pressure to take on additional things rather than do the existing things more clearly, more simply and more effectively. And, and is there also a problem here with the, the broader accountability system under which schools operate? So I'm thinking, you know, if I were in a school now that had just been told it was in special measures or potentially even requires improvement, they might be saying there's an awful lot to do in a very short space of time. I don't have six months to develop one specific aspect. I just need to get things where they need to be. And that means we're going to be moving fast and doing a lot of things because the pressure of the accountability system says you've got to get there and you've got a short space of time yeah. to do it. Is, is that a tension in the system, do you think, or not? Yes, it's hugely problematic. And I think there's two things to that. Number one, um, if I'm a school and you're my school improvement partner, then you are held to account for my Ofsted ratings. And if in the system we've heard that that school down the road was failed because they didn't have this policy on the website and that school over there failed because one person couldn't say this, and then we, we gather all of those understandings of things that make people fail and turn them into an enormous checklist, which I already think I should probably try and do these. But even if I'm just about resisting it, you might then say to me, no, I think you should do these because partly you're thinking, oh, I don't want them to fail because it will go on my record as well. And everybody, governors, school improvement, uh, local authorities, multi-academy trusts, teachers, senior leaders, everyone is incentivized just to try and tick all of the boxes so that they don't accidentally miss the one thing that makes them fail. And then everybody looks bad. And that's a problem because we're using this Ofsted um, grading, this Ofsted system for so many different purposes that everybody tries to advise to do everything just in case. Um, so I like the simplicity of the new framework coming through and some of those core ideas. But if you're in DfE and you say someone's made a big fuss because, I don't know, EpiPen training uh, failed in one school and someone died of a, pe of a peanut allergy, then it's just too easy to say, oh, well, you can't be Ofsted good or outstanding if you haven't got X, Y, Z, A, B, C in place for EpiPen training. And then suddenly, boom, 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 loads more boxes to tick. It's a problem when there are so few levers in the system. Let's talk about school culture for a moment because you talk about that a lot in the book and the importance of having the right culture to support professional learning. What does the right culture look like in that sense? Great culture has a number of different aspects to it. It has um, trust, that's really key, so that people can take risks in front of each other, with each other, 
Um, but they can take risks on trying different things or things that are new, and they know people will have their back. Uh, great culture needs, therefore, a safety that you're not constantly stressed and worried and anxious that things are about to go wrong, that you're about to be shouted at by a colleague or behavior is going to be terrible in your next class. If you're firefighting the whole time, you can't possibly have the mental space to take risks and try new things and explore difficult challenges. So we need this sense of psychological safety, great behavior, good culture, no bullying. We need a great sense of trust. We need great communication. If we're going to improve things, then we can't just all try a new thing and tell each other how much it's lovely. We need to genuinely be able to say, oh, actually, that didn't work for me, or actually, I'm still a bit worried because we need high-quality dialogue between teachers, between pupils and teachers, between teachers and leaders, and leaders and all of the people around them. And you constantly see issues in schools where there are things we don't discuss, and everybody has, has massive problems with things that are going on and policies that are happening, and no one talks about it. And you talk there about dialogue. I'm just interested in that for a moment because I guess one of the most important things school leaders can do then is give teachers time and space to have those conversations because often schools are such busy places that there isn't the time to have those conversations. So is it partly about that, school leaders freeing up time and this is we're going to have this dialogue now? Is that too simplistic of you? Uh, time to speak to each other is really key, but actually learning how to speak to each other is really key. We're all taught to be very polite and not say bad things about people and, you know, don't insult someone and somehow we're, you know, we're supposed to make sure other people are happy and none of these things are good for dialogue within an organisation. So time, the habits of dialogue, modelling from leaders, that leaders are the ones who have to more than anyone else say, what am I doing wrong? Be as honest as you can. Thank you for being really honest. And they have to be as reticent as possible about kind of, you know, having a go at someone for giving them bad feedback. All of that is really important. But also, if you and I are teachers and we've never worked with each other before and no one's ever really asked us to do much other than just teach our classes, and now you're saying you need to work on a scheme of work together, well, we need some guidance on, well, what sort of conversations should we be having with each other? What would they look like? What would a good conversation look like? What would a bad conversation look like? This doesn't automatically happen. People need the structures. Things like lesson study, collaborative inquiry, for example, give a very clear structure with prompts about what to say, when to say it, how to have a good conversation, how to not let problems slip through the net. Um, But that's also what great experts do. And they say, "Mm, you're having a nice conversation, but I think there's issues that we're not talking about. And actually, I disagree with you all, and here's why. Or actually, keep going, and here's why. So we need an atmosphere in which people can have good quality dialogue. Other aspects we know, uh, so you've got the behaviour, you've got the dialogue, safety, openness, you've got uh, collaboration, um, but also this sense of um, an environment in which people are really focused on shared goals as well, focused on how do we really improve outcomes for children. We've agreed on our priorities together. We all have a sense in which we're listening to each other and we're um, taking account of each other's priorities and strengths and so on. But unless there are shared goals and everybody feels they're pulling in the same direction, then culturally that's, that's a nightmare. Um, and you, you find organisations where no one's ever really sat down or someone did but the senior leadership team wrote down their five vision statements and just posted them on every classroom and they wonder why no one cares. Uh, because they're not jointly owned. Joint ownership of the direction of travel, joint ownership of that understanding that we need to work on it together, we need to talk about it together, we need honesty, we need to try things, challenge ourselves that's how we get this great improvement. Do you think teachers need different 
approaches to professional learning at different stages in their career? I mean, I suppose there's the obvious example here of the NQT might have a different approach to someone who's been teaching for 25 years, but is there a somewhere in between that, that someone who's been teaching for five or six years might need a slightly different approach to mm. professional learning than someone who has been teaching 25, 30 years? Absolutely. So firstly, I think we need to say professional learning in a school. In our system, teachers, all staff, in fact, assume that the school will provide the professional development for them. That means the school can't only provide organisational related CPD, you know, for organisational goals. It also needs to make sure each of the teams and specialisms have their own CPD plans and individuals do as well. Within that, there's lots of room to differentiate. We know that people who are novices or that they're inexperienced in a domain, um, in a new skill and a piece of knowledge and a practice, they need to learn slightly differently to people who are very experienced. If you don't know much, the first thing you need are just good concrete examples have a go at something in a quite scaffolded, careful, structured way and get feedback, but you don't want all of the choice in the world. Great example of that is the first time a trainee is asked to plan a lesson, blank lesson plan, panic. There's too much freedom there and you just need to see an example and then tweak. At the other end of the scale, when people are very experienced, if you keep showing them examples of what other people do, that can only really be a prompt to start exploring their own thinking. and. Once you've been teaching for several years, you don't even remember why you're doing what you're doing. You might even not be aware of some of the things you're doing. So we need to bring that kind of the tacit habits to the, to the fore and say, okay, what are you currently doing? Oh, I hadn't realized I do that. Why do you do that? I'm not sure I've ever thought about it. Oh, I think it's because of this. And we have to help people articulate what they do now and why they do it in order to help them change it and give people a sense of you need to be the one who are changing your own thinking. Um, and there's, so there's a lot more agency and control and kind of sense of inquiry for more experienced colleagues than there is for less experienced colleagues. And of course, that means any one programme that encompasses different ranges of experience needs to have that room for some seeing more examples and some seeing fewer examples and having a bit more chance to explore. Uh, we also know, of course, different career stage. Um, if you're coming back from sick leave or maternity leave, you'll need a different approach than if you are really ambitiously looking for your first leadership opportunity or if you are looking to go part-time or you want to second some, you have a secondment or work, do work shadowing. and We need all of these different tools in our arsenal to make sure that everybody gets something that works for them. You can't guarantee. There's no perfect way to say, right, James, you're sixth year in, you're this, you're doing this, this will be the perfect thing for you. It's got to be constant dialogue and trying things out. And sadly, time is, is running against us here, but I would like to ask one more thing before we finish. Um, if you had a, a school leader in front of you now and you only had the opportunity to give them one piece of advice when it comes to developing professional learning and get great professional learning going on in their schools, what would that single piece of advice be? It would be this. Pay as much attention to the improvement of, of staff learning as you do to children's learning. So all the time that you spend thinking about how pupils learn and how you're thinking of their curriculum and how you're evaluating the impact that's having, spend at least as much time thinking about that for staff. And that means thinking around how are you leading professional development? How are you planning professional development? How are you resourcing professional development? How are you monitoring, evaluating, talking about it, prioritizing it? Because for me, Every bit of effort you put into one child changes one child's life. Every bit of effort you put into helping one member of staff grow not only impacts all of the children that they work with, 
but also all of those future generations as well. The leverage of that effort can be huge. So we need to prioritize staff members' learning as much as we prioritize people's learning. This is where we reach the end of the road for this episode. Thanks ever so much for listening. To make sure that you get all the future episodes, all the future podcasts from NAHT and NAHT Edge, you can subscribe on iTunes. It's also possible to leave us a review. It's always good to hear your feedback and your thoughts. Your feedback and suggestions are always welcome. Our email is info at naht.org.uk. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.naht.org.uk forward slash join. We're also on social media. You can follow our Twitter handles. Our accounts are at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News.